Welcome to Silver Lining, the podcast where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. This week, Columbia PhD candidate in literature Stephen Choi explores how the concept of childhood emerged in modern Japan, why children's literature turned away from nationalism and militarism and towards individualism and democracy in the post-war period, and illuminates how girls' literature became a venue for romantic storytelling and new forms of language. Could you tell us more about children's literature and what this notion of um, childhood is? and how that's evolved in modern Japanese society and literature? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a huge question. That's kind of yeah. Yeah, the, the project. <laughs> Your entire research. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess I, I kind of start this in the, mo- I'm, I'm a modern scholar, but I started in the modern period when, when I guess the modern period starts in Japan, uh, which is the late uh, 1800s. Some people have argued that the concept of childhood is kind of a modern concept, that it, it's invented in a modern world. Which is not entirely wrong, but obviously it's kind of mis- misleading because there's always some kind of concept of childhood in any, in any society at any time. It's just a little different when what it means, what children mean to society is different at any moment. So the, what's significant about the modern moment and what we kind of think of as children right now, in my opinion, kind of starts with in the modern period, what happens is, especially in Japan, they think, okay, we have a new world now. It's kind of a new thought process of we have to become westernized and we're living in a new world, but the older generation is not able to leave that world anymore because they don't really understand it. They haven't gone through the same kind of education. So what happens at that moment is that young people, they call them the new youth, they become really important. They're the ones who are gonna be understand this world a little better. Mm-hmm. So that's when that's where I kind of locate the separation from the older generation to a younger generation when the younger generation are really the only ones who are going to understand the future. Right. right. And that almost continues until now. Right. Even nowadays, technology is changing so fast. We kind of educate children to be different from us. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, with, you know, with the computer, the new education, they're doing programming education they're doing now. It's like it's nothing that the older generation has done before. And that's something that started in the modern period. If you go back to kind of the samurai period, if you're a samurai, your children are going to be samurai and should teach them the same things. That kind of changed in the modern period. And the whole education and writing for them changes as well um, with this new idea of that the child is going to grow up and they're going to change the entire family's uh, status. The whole writing for children begin with boys. Uh, stories mm-hmm. for boys. This, uh, it just kind of happens that way uh, just because the number of people can read. As education catches up, we get more reading material uh, for girls. And even the words that people use to talk about boys and girls start to change because of that. Mm-hmm. Right? We have uh, in Japanese, there's a name shonen and a shoujo that mm-hmm. presently we use for boys and girls. But at the time, shonen was just kind of for little, everyone of, of of, I guess, small age or something is what it, what it means. Right. Um, and then because now in culture, there was this big uh, boom of girls' culture, they kind of called that shoujo culture. And then now there's a difference between the shoujo and the shonen. Um, and that changes things. Um, I wanted to ask you actually about the discrepancy <laughs> between um, education and gender. 
especially in mm. the surgery genre of girls' literature. So mm. when it was created at the, be the beginning of the 20th century, you said it was targeted at a small minority of privileged schoolgirls. Uh. How did that affect the development of the genre since then? Yeah, the schools for girls, they were a very unique space um, where all these, well, the culture for children, uh, girls in literature started. And obviously you had to be of a certain status, you had to have certain financial means to go there. But in my opinion, so this is kind of my take on it, is that when this cultural space was opened, it was because of that educational space that this cultural space opened up. But once it opened up, um, there was a possibility to express things that you really couldn't in other venues, which is kind of a blatant romanticism. <laughs> you could take romantic uh, elements as far as you can with this because it was for girls and it was for this specific space. Um, and and a lot, what was associated with that was the foreign, the modern, uh, and kind of the extravagant and the rich and things like that. Not all stories, but that was the image that it had. Um, so a lot of writers uh, actually kind of used that as a venue to kind of, I guess, vent or <laughs> express their more romantic uh, sides of their artistry. Ultimately, uh, if we come all the way to now, it really kind of connects to more the manga, the comic or anime culture where mm -hmm. that kind of freedom still exists. Um, and even the art form uh, began, uh, so these uh, girls magazines had these beautiful covers and illustrations of these big eyed girls wearing Western clothing. And they're very similar to the art style that they use uh, for anime today. And mm -hmm. it's all kind of connected that, that that space really created a culture that lasts to this day, although girls' literature isn't as active uh, today. I did go to Japan once, and when I was in the bookstore, I found that um, the books are separated into like girls' reading, women's reading, and like men's reading, boys' reading, that kind of categories. Right. I was, I'm just wondering, is that like a very unique thing to Japan, and what are the implications? Ah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how unique it is just because I don't know at all what other countries are like, but um, in Japan it is very, very, well, how do I say it? <laughs> um, it's very blatant, like it's in your face, right? It's, it's very obvious, they don't hide mm -hmm. it. Every time I go into a Japanese, there, there's these stores called book off, they're kind of used bookstores. Um, there's always a, an aisle that I really can't go into, and most men can't. Oh wow! It, it, yeah, it's the the shoujo manga and the and the BL, I guess, the boys love section, where I could be interested because of what I study and what I want to see, <laughs> but uh, it's very difficult for me to step into that space. Um, and again, the way I look at it, the implications there might be social implications, and there might be people who have an issue with things like that. The way I look at it is, is that it's a space of culture, again, that allows for certain things, that it might limit, it might be limiting in the way we think about gender differences um, as, as kind of a theoretical uh, issue. But uh, in practice, uh, certain spaces that have very specific needs um, open up new ways of uh, expression. Or, and sometimes, um, sometimes a generalized space 
of cultural production is actually very limiting as well. When you have to accommodate everyone, it's actually a bit, it's a bit limiting. So there is an amount of freedom that comes with having these different uh, sections. You've talked about children's literature in Japan taking a turn away from national and militarism in the 30s and the 40s towards individualism and democracy. And what kind of factors have precipitated that change? Yeah, um, so it's really all about the war. <laughs> um, kind of the history of modern Japan revolves around that uh, World War II. Um, and so in the 30s and 40s, uh, like I said, the Taisho period until 1926, or it's kind of the end of the 20s, was a, was a very free and individualistic democratic, they call it the Taisho democracy, um, and the individualism was a thing. Um, there were, it was, things were going actually uh, although some people might argue against it, going in the direction that it went in the post-war. <laughs> um, but in the 30s, um, wars began, especially beginning in China, and kind of wars started happening. And mm -hmm. the writing, at, at that moment, children kind of had to become, um, or at least uh, taken into kind of that, to be a part of the movements that Japan as an empire was going into. Um, meaning that, that if they would be given material to read that were uh, for the expansion of the empire, as well as uh, kind of for becoming the, the good soldier, I guess. Right. <laughs> right. Right, and, and it, it's, it escalates. It's not just that it just kind of happens, that it slowly escalates. And the term they use for children, the official term they use for children uh, changes. Uh, that Not that it was there before, but that they actually kind of make children's literature into shōkokumin bungaku. And shōkokumin meaning uh, small countrymen, or <laughs> small <laughs> people of the nation. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what they call it in the last three or four years uh, of war, kind of going into 1945. So this uh, very rapidly kind of makes everything for children uh, very, I guess, oppressive, uh, if you want to call it that, um, very controlled and very educational towards that nationalistic and militaristic uh, direction. And so, the defeat in 1945 and mm -hmm. the word defeat is very important <laughs> that it's not just the end of the war that it is a defeat and at that moment um well the very first thing that happens is the u.s occupation which is the biggest factor in all the changes that happen and all the way until now <laughs> um, right. in very very big ways and even without that there is this um feeling that things need to change, right? That, that the way we've been treating children or way we've been educating children or what kind of culture that we've been giving them have to change. Um, and there is actually a bit of time in figuring out what that is. It doesn't really kind of happen right away. It's not like, okay, we just have to be democratic. Um, people try to begin again what they did in the 20s um, and that actually fails, but there's, there's a lot of trial and error going on. And while that trial and error going, is going on, what happens is the U.S. spends actually quite a bit of money, um, not just uh, government institutions, but even private institutions spend a lot of money to have intellectuals from Japan come over to the U.S. Um, 
or, or sometimes to other European countries to study. Right. And a lot of intellectuals uh, went to American schools and a lot of uh, actually library workers hmm. that went to the US to study. Um, and they all went back in about a year or two. And that begins to change the face of children's literature as, as a, um, just specifically uh, because now the history of Japanese literature, Japanese children's literature from pre-war is kind of useless, <laughs> for lack of a better word. It's a, they can't really use that anymore because um, literature always needs some kind of authority. So when, they, when something new comes out, a new work of literature comes out, something has to authorize its value. But right. if you can't use your own culture to authorize your new works, then what do you do? Like what, what, so all the knowledge that they gain from the US, that's what they use now. So mm -hmm. all the authority they kind of bring in from uh, overseas. And that begins to change a lot about not just literature, even if they're bringing over ideas about literature, it changes the way they view children, um, their place in society. And the biggest change is that they change from a Japanese perspective to a world perspective. Mm -hmm. right? um, and what they call the world perspective is actually a US perspective, but that's, that's what <laughs> they call it. And that's the, um, it's kind of a standard. Um, so that's where the democracy comes in. And, and we're, we're going to kind of be careful with the word democracy, but it's kind of a US model. <laughs> right, of course. Right? And, um, I don't know if we'll get to this later, but like what happens is that new, rather than new original works getting published, what gets published are translations, especially for almost all of the 50s. Mm -hmm. It's translation collections uh, in bulks right, of, of what they call world literature for children. Wow. And it takes time, like it takes time to build up that authority. Uh, you can't really just take a foreign history of literature and just kind of plop it down into your own country, that it takes a while of constructing uh, these collections and having these people who have studied overseas come back and uh, make the arguments and have the discourse. Um, and it, that's why um, um, really Japanese, contemporary Japanese children's literature is set to begin uh, in 1959 or in the 60s. Mm -hmm. It took about 15 years to actually nice. <laughs> get it back. Yeah. So if Japanese children's literature came to mirror the ideologies of American literature, what made it different as a genre? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, so um, the, the simple answer is that it, the whole point is not to differentiate. Right? The whole point is that, um, that children's literature should be universal and generic. That it should, there, there is, the children should be the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, I have an example of this. Um, you guys might know the movie uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. Yes. You guys heard of it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's from, from Ghibli, from the great um, Miyazakao. <laughs> um, that is actually originally a book. Um, and that it's a Japanese book Jap for children but there's absolutely nothing Japanese about that book. Yeah. So it's, um, it's entirely set in a fantasy place, but it's a, it's a city um, that is very European. All the food and all the names of people and everything is very, uh, a generic image of the West. And it's, a, it's about a, a young witch. Um, and 
I've talked to a lot of people in Japan uh, who think it's a foreign work. <laughs> wow. Um, and I've had arguments. Uh, like, I know who the writer is, I know it's in Japan, but people have argued with me, well, it can't be Japanese. Um, right. And that's how much um, kind of Japanese children's literature really doesn't limit itself to Japan. Um, or, and a lot of the times, attempts to be foreign, attempts to feel foreign, a lot of the very representative works of contemporary uh, Japanese literature are very, um, very foreign. Uh, there's, there's a, there are picture books uh, that are very, very famous. And it's just that one book is about cooking and it, they cook uh, a bread that's, <laughs> that obviously not Japanese. <laughs> and it's called kastera. I don't know what that is in English. <laughs> but, oh but they, yeah. Yeah, they, so they cook this and that's, and, these, it's, and that's it. And there's absolutely nothing Japanese about it. So, yeah, I think the point is that it's meant not to be different. One thing that I have always been, like personally, I've always been interested in Japanese literature is um, like the use of gendered language, like women's oh. language and men's language. And I was just wondering, reading your work, how does that play into children's literature? And does that in any way affect how children read? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, there's a very complex, <laughs> history of language in Japan because it changed so much. Um, and women's language and men's language, it's, that's always been around, um, uh, especially in writing. Uh, even, the, even the forms that they write in is, is different. And uh, if, you, if you know a little bit of Japanese, there's different styles. Uh, there's katakana and there's hiragana and there's kanji. So there's Chinese characters in two different types of uh, alphabet. And in the pre-war period, the hiragana, the softer looking style, was for women been a long time ago. Uh, but um, so it's always been there. And so the modern, when language is modernized, <laughs> it kind of took on different forms. And it kind of goes along with the history that I, that I laid out a little bit in terms of women's language, because the girls' schools was like a hotbed. Mm -hmm. for new styles of language <laughs> and a lot of what we in the contemporary world associate with women's language is kind of related to the girls language that came about at that time in the girls schools um, the influence of that in children's literature is probably not as much because when you're for children the language is about the same um, it's when you get into Okay, so this is kind of interesting that, that the, the women's language begins with girls' schools, but it soon becomes the language for the elite class women. Um, again, because these girls' schools are not for everyone, <laughs> right? And it kind of, there's a class element to it. Um, and what we have now is kind of a remnant of these processes that happened, uh, and, and I'm kind of simplifying way too much, but, but, uh, but what I'm just trying to say is there's a history there that's linked uh, to children's culture and education and literature of why uh, certain types of speech still exist to this day in certain spaces <laughs> um, mm -hmm. that really needs more studying that I can't really say right now how it's how it's influencing or how it exists it's because it's very complex and we're kind of missing the whole accent aspect the, of the countrysides um, that where that doesn't apply 
Um, and literature is slowly trying to accommodate for that. <laughs> it's, it's a difficult thing and it's, it's so not kind of applicable in a way that we can't really apply that there is a woman's language and a men's language uh, at the moment because there really isn't. It seems like it, especially in, in anime, but, <laughs> but it's kind of gone past that and everything's a bit of a jumble right now and a lot of uh, archaic language is coming back and even the archaic language is being gendered and it's <laughs> it's just culture going uh, and and it, in a way that it's not really that important anymore mm -hmm. you know in especially when feminism was a huge thing and you know maybe until in the 90s or something but right now in this like today um i think the diversity and how we deal with diversity is, is more important than, um, than kind of having, or then trying to figure out the binaries or why they, they exist, um, right? Because it's so complicated. You mentioned Ghibli and their Western setting stories. And I was wondering how this Westernization of some of Japanese children's stories affect its reception um, overseas. Does it make it easier for Western audience to digest? To what extent does that play into consideration? Yeah. Um, the children's literature of Japan really isn't known much outside of Japan. Um, right. There's translations of fairy tales uh, from Japan. The more, more traditionally Japanese looking things, uh, in terms of literature, it, is the more translated. Um, what does come, what the, obviously goes outside of Japan are more of the animations, uh, which are technically for children. They're, they're uh, especially the Doraemon or something. That, that's that's uh, very um, obviously for children. Um, but the it, the reception of those like animations and the Ghibli and that definitely um, are easier, I guess, to to kind of receive uh, in the US uh, because that's where it comes from. <laughs> and uh, so Miyazaki Hayao, the, you know, the main director at Ghibli, uh, mm -hmm. is a big fan of this series called Iwanami Shonen Bunko, which is Iwanami uh, Library for Children. It's a series of, of books that mostly translation that began in 1950. And it's still going to this day. And he's a big fan. And he took a lot of his movie ideas from them and he talks about that and it's really kind of indirect <laughs> the how it comes back to the US um, mm -hmm. directly it's really not much of a thing and there's many reasons for that and one, one thing is that um, we don't really get a lot of foreign children's literature <laughs> in North America uh, but another thing is that ja the Japanese children's literature probably isn't different enough and it really isn't um, um, Japan is now having an aging population. To what extent does that affect the notion of children in society? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very important question and that's a very difficult question. And um, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> um, there's that, there is that population issue and the age of the population issue, the fertility rate uh, issue. And, but we kind of have to consider a lot of things, especially we kind of have to consider the pandemic um, can't really isolate issues and think about it, right? Um, so the, my worry or my fear 
is, and it's just kind of a personal thing, <laughs> um, is that the emphasis on culture might weaken. Um, it already is to, to in many uh, aspects, like humanities is, uh, is kind of dying out <laughs> in the universities. So emphasis on culture, and the reason I say that is because um, there was that 311 uh, earthquake and nuclear uh, disaster. And the whole realization from that is that we can't trust technology. <laughs> that it's going to fail us at some point, right? Um, and so there's this uh, focus on science and technology because of that, right? Because that's the crisis at hand. It's, there was a natural disaster, but again, even that, um, how, do, how do we go about um, facing that and trying to kind of overcome that? We kind of turn to science and technology, right? And with, especially with um, smaller numbers of children, how, how are we going to use this population? If, if, the, if these politicians are thinking that, how are we going to use this population um, for the future, for a better future? And it might emphasize science and technology. And the pandemic is a very interesting um, thing. We don't know what's going to happen. But one thing that we do know has happened is kind of a reinforcement of borders, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a very important thing, right? That... Uh, for one thing, we can't go across borders, but not just people, but trade routes have been cut down. So a lot of countries had to figure out ways to do things in isolation. That was very, uh, very easily, we could just get things from other countries and send them to other countries. We just can't do that anymore. And all these systems, the economic systems are changing already and they've adapted to having very kind of enclosed borders. So with that, and then the, the kind of, you know, the, pan, the actual pandemic, the cure, fighting the cure, medical cure for this thing and kind of fighting that, all of these are very technical. And, and if we start emphasizing the nation on top of that, mm. kind of that, that emphasis on culture and the, the function of culture and the possibilities of culture, what it can do might be limiting that. And that's really, what worries me and that what, what I fear uh, from the way, the way things are going. And if, if children become more precious, I'm not, I was about to say commodity, but um, <laughs> more precious uh, kind of forces like workforce, right. um, there's gonna be, there's gonna be you know, sacrifices made to certain uh, parts and maybe culture is the first part to go. But so that's why scholars like myself, uh, have a lot of work to do at the moment to to show mm -hmm. people the value of uh, cultural education and culture because um, children's culture and children's literature literature like these this is where our our conceptions of things of people's like where um, our awareness of what the world is forms right and how we attack problems and issues really are based on that. So if, if we have these borders kind of, uh, kind of reinforced, but if we know from our cultural background that, that intercultural relations are important and it's kind of part of us, you know, then, then we'll move towards making things better, right? And, and understand, having 
very concrete understanding of how that works is important and it's very difficult to do, right? It's very difficult to say, if we write these types of books, well, this, is, this will happen. Um, mm -hmm. But there is a way to look back into history and see what happened and what kind of structures were there, what people tried and what failed and why this happened. Um, we can start to understand the value, how it functions. And if we can make a good case uh, for the importance of studying culture and also um, providing the, the kind of culture that we believe <laughs> to be good uh, for people. Um, that's the work, right? It's, it's work of not really even being an academic and being uh, having the right theories or uh, presenting the right ideas. It's really the work of helping people understand what's important <laughs> mm -hmm. right, about culture. So, um, you know, that's for me, the biggest thing in my uh, project, which is probably going to come out in, in about 10 years or so as a book. <laughs> so in that time, you know, just kind of trying to see how it can help people uh, with, with where things are going. Um, so, Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I think you've done an incredible job at showing how society has shaped children's literature, but also how children's literature has shaped Japanese society. So we're so grateful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. This is uh, great. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point, right? It's to get uh, kind of the young generation interested uh, in the things that, that we think are important. You've been listening to Silver Lining with Yanwa Chen, Ji Yun Moon, and Jaslyn Chaga. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges by cross cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest this week, Stephen Choi, and thanks to you for tuning in.